Hello, and welcome to the Make Shop podcast, hosted by myself, Anusha from Talisa Naturals, and Megan, the owner of Shop Park Story. And today we are going to talk um, to Megan, and we're going to delve a little deeper into her business journey. Hey, Megan. Hi. Can't believe we're back for episode two. I know. <laughs> Hopefully y'all will want to hear a little bit more about me and then next week we're going to do the same for Anusha before we start hosting guests. So just hang with us a little bit longer for some background and then we'll get to interviewing folks um, like you. So Megan, I thought we'd start, um, if you just in a nutshell, um, just tell us a little bit about what you did before opening up your business um, and sort of the transition from your own comp- from your clothing line to your brick and mortar, and then uh, we'll talk more about we'll talk more about the changes that you've been through um, while running your brick and mortar. Yeah, so I um, started as an attorney. I went to law school. Always thought I wanted to be an attorney. I did every extracurricular possible geared towards becoming an attorney. I was in court, mock trial, debate, all of that sort of stuff, um, and never really considered anything other than becoming an attorney. The idea that one could design clothing or own a shop never crossed my mind. Um, And it's not because there was anyone in my family who was an attorney either. I was the first and I think only attorney in my family. So I don't really know um, why, but I became fixated on becoming an attorney, I think in third grade and just kind of stuck with it. Um, so I went to law school, got a job, loved practicing in North Carolina. Um, and then I got married in May of 2015 and relocated to Washington DC where I, um, continued to practice and just kind of started designing clothing on the side, um, happenstance or because of my very long torso, I would buy dresses, always loved fashion, loved shopping and turn them into tops. Um, that kind of led to questions about where'd you get the top? Where can I buy it? And of course I was like, well, you could buy it as a dress, but I turned it into a top. Um, and my husband just kind of nonchalantly one day was like, well, what if you design clothing that was meant for tall women to begin with? Right. I was like, well, there's an idea, but like I have a full-time job as an attorney. Um, so I started Googling, and I think I mentioned this on episode one, kind of on my way to and from work, I rode the circulator bus. So if you're uh, if you're familiar with DC at all, I rode the Union Station to Georgetown circulator bus. And I would just Google kind of on that ride. I knew absolutely nothing. Um, I don't know how to sew, which I think a lot of people find shocking. Um, but I don't. I, I always took my dresses to the tailor and had them hem them. Basically, just a really excessive hem job because um, I, I didn't change the design of the um, kind of like shoulder to hip of the top, I would just hem them instead of like two inches, like six inches. Um, but the tailors always did that for me. So I had to learn from the ground up, um, kind of how one makes clothing, what's required, who, who does this and like, what are their job titles? Um, so I learned that first and foremost, you need a pattern maker, which is the person who, uh, takes a fashion sketch or a really pretty sketch of a garment and turns it into a technical sketch. Uh, with things like armholes, shoulder links um, that tell somebody who's going to cut and sew the garment 
exactly what they're doing. Um, and a pattern maker typically or can oftentimes also be your sample maker. And then you, from there, you would need somebody to manufacture um, the garment. So once you've created a pattern, you've created a sample, you tweak that, you finalize it, then the garment's ready to be produced and you work with a production uh, facility to produce the garment. Um, and there are large and small scale production facilities. I worked with what's called a small run production company, which means they run um, or produce in very small batches. Um, the cost per garment to do so is much higher, but your overall risk is lower because you don't have thousands of units. You have maybe one to 25 of a particular style. Um, so I learned all of that kind of on the bus, and then I started reaching out, Googling for, you know, pattern maker, small run production company, um, and then would email folks um, saying, I was a new designer, I have this idea for a clothing line geared towards tall women, would they work with me? I'd say 98% of the time I never received a response, like no email back, no nothing. Um, I got a couple no's and then finally landed on a yes. Um, Rosalie of Pattern Sample So, located in Northeast Washington, D.C., said yes. Um, and then I got a meeting with her, I believe, in July of 2016. And what was the, uh, oh, I should say, when was the transition from, you know, having your own clothing line to making that decision and taking the next step to opening up your own store? So it took me about a year to launch the clothing line from the time I met with Rosalie in, I believe it was July 2016, to launching in August of 2017. And then it was another um, which but I was working during that time. I did leave my full-time lawyer job in March of 2017. Well, can I ask um, you a quick question? Yeah. Did it take a lot of capital or does it take a lot of capital to start a clothing line? Yes and no. Because I was working with a small run production company, my initial line, I had three, my initial launch. So when I launched in August of 2017, I only had three designs and I only made one her size. So if I made a shirt, I had extra small through extra large. So I only had five pieces. Um, and that's why I wanted to work with a smaller production company. So I did pay a premium, um, one to have the items manufactured in DC. Uh, Rosalie owns her own small run production company. She's also my pattern maker and sample maker. She sets her own rates. I didn't negotiate with her or quibble with her or anything like that. So she's at her own rates. It was kind of like a take it or leave it or at least that's how I always worked with her. Um, so I, I took her rates again at the time. I, no one else even responded to my email. So I just right. felt incredibly <laughs> lucky that she was willing to work with me. Um, and the fact that she was willing to work with a, a novice who knew nothing about this and right. was willing to work in such small quantities. So she set her rates for the pattern making and the sampling and then the per piece production rate. And you do pay a premium to produce in such small quantities. So even on her small scale, like if I produce 15 pieces per style, my per piece production rate goes down incrementally. If I produce 25, right. even on a very small run production capacity, incremental increases in production per style will reduce your costs. However, if we're talking about like overall sums of money, um, it is 
so much cheaper and requires so much little, so much less capital if you only make five per piece. I will tell you that the most expensive part of launching a clothing line isn't the production runs, it is the sampling and um, pattern costs. So for every um, pattern you create, it costs me, I don't know, two to $300 for the pattern. And then you have to pay for the sample, which is two to $300. And you have to pay to grade a pattern. So if you want to offer a pattern or a style, a top, for example, an extra small to extra large, you have to grade the pattern to run that size um, range. So typically folks uh, sample something in a smaller medium because it's then easier to grade up to an extra large and down to an extra small. I was the fit model based on just like convenience and I'm a small, so we graded up to an extra large and down to an extra small. Um, in an ideal world, I would have had a medium as my base fit model, but it, it proved to work just fine with me as a small. Um, but it, I would say that what we call R&D, so the pattern making, the sampling, the pattern grading is the most capital intensive part of any clothing line. And then you make your money when you produce and sell in some quantity. Um, I will say the flip side of that, which is the R&D is never considered part of the cost um, or the the formula for dictating cost of a garment. So tradition or industry standard is that a garment is uh, anywhere between two and four times the cost of labor and fabric to make the garment the garment plus any notions. So your fabric plus your zippers plus your labor costs. Mm -hmm. And then you multiply, you add all those together, um, you know, like your labels, your zippers, your fabric, um, and your labor, whatever goes into the actual garment. And then you multiply that by two to four times and you come up with your retail price. Um, and then that, the difference between the cost of the garment and the retail price over however many units you produce have to pay you back for the R&D costs and then hopefully make you some profit. Okay. Um, so it takes some, I'd say it takes however much capital depending on the number of garments you want to release. So it was not terribly expensive for me to get started because I only released three garments. Now it's most expensive to release those first three garments because you're starting from scratch. Once you get kind of like a base or core um, collection of garments that then you can modify and say like add a sleeve, make it long sleeve, um, then you're you're saving money because you're not having to start from the ground up right. in terms of uh, sampling and pattern making. So now you have your clothing line and uh, explain the brick and mortar. <laughs> Um, so I launched the clothing line in August of 2017. I started doing markets and trade shows, um, or not sorry, markets and, um, pop-ups and trunk shows, um, and realized that folks are just like not super keen on jumping in a black tent, pop-up tent to try and clothings at, at a market, given the fact that all of my stuff was made in small batches in DC it was obviously more expensive than say like the candle booth set up next to me. And so sometimes it was just a really hard fit. Um, but truck shows and kind of events at 
uh, stores went much better because the price point was more consistent. Folks were coming in and kind of expecting to try on clothes. Um, and I kept hearing feedback that like the garments were so much nicer than they expected online. The fabric was nicer. The construction was nicer. And so I think that the price point became apparent um, and people understood why it costs what it costs when they could talk to me, when they could try it on, when they could touch it, which wasn't as apparent online. Um, right. But there just aren't a lot of independent women's wear stores in the district. And despite kind of trunk shows and um, pop-ups, it was hard to get into them on a consistent basis. Um, but I did make friends with other local clothing designers. So Mimi of Mimi Miller Women's Wear, Genevieve of Underbears and Rebecca of Virginia Dare Dress Company um, are all local designers. They all have clothing lines um, and they became really good friends of mine. And we all found ourselves in a similar situation and all wanted more outlets to sell our clothing in person on a more consistent basis. Um, and I think I just was like, well, like, what if we had a store. Um, I also didn't love selling my stuff online. I didn't love running an online business. I really enjoyed the customer interactions and the, the a physical space with which to operate out of. Um, so, you know, I floated the idea with them to see if they were game and if they would work with me, if I managed somehow to find a brick and mortar location and they were up for it. Um, so I just kind of started looking for pop-up opportunities and sending emails. I think I said this in the first episode too, like that I assumed no one would ever answer. Um, but by that time in business had been about a year. Like I was really used to never hearing back from mm -hmm. folks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I'm sure you're used to that. Oh yes. Too. <laughs> oh yes. Like tell me no. That's Even totally to fine. the day. <laughs> I don't mind being told no. I hate not hearing anything back. Um, but you know, like at that point in my business, I was like, well, what's it to me to be told no, or to not get an answer back. I was accustomed to it. And in fact, I got an email in 2018 that really gave me the confidence to reach out. Um, there's a mall up in Montgomery County called Westfield, I believe. And they were sending out totally just like generic emails, probably to everyone being like, we would love to have you you know, fill a pop-up space in our mall. Um, and I took them seriously and responded, which I'm sure they didn't anticipate. <laughs> when, you know, I can't believe I considered this, but um, it just, it just hit at the right time. Um, so I went and toured a space and was like, I can't have a shop in a mall. I would hate right. my life. Oh, I, yeah. And, and, and like no one would work with me because I don't think we're mall brands and I don't think the brands no, I want yeah. to carry, mm -hmm. like, I don't think you would want to see your stuff in a mall and no. I wanted to carry people like you. But what it did was make me realize, like, I really do want this and maybe somebody will take me seriously, even though this isn't the right fit. Um, so I'm actually really grateful for that email. Um, so then I just started shooting off emails and hoping that somebody would respond, perhaps potentially, and got lucky enough to land the spot in Mosaic. Um, and we opened there in October of 2018. Originally, it was just a three-month lease. Um, 
and I kind of um, went into it with kind of as little of an investment as possible. Um, so I did things as cheaply as I could because it could have terminated at any time. I, you know, and I, I just didn't want to be stuck kind of holding the bag, if you will. Um, but that ended up going on for nine months. And by the end of it, I was convinced that I was meant to run a brick and mortar and that I could run a brick and mortar selling ethical, sustainable, and local brands kind of in the way I wanted to, which was a more boutique style. Um, but I needed to find the right spot and the right size um, space. So I thought I had confirmed a space in Capitol Hill, um, but that fell through at the last minute. So when we closed up Mosaic in July of 2019, I wasn't sure if I was going to have a boutique again or when or where um, and decided to give myself through the end of the year to find a new space. And then like, if I couldn't find a new space, then I was going to call it quits. Um, and I, I don't know, go back to law or find a real job that paid me. <laughs> well, it was definitely a nerve wracking time. I remember that um, kind of, you know, you go through those phases in business of you just not knowing what the next step is going to be. Um, so I remember asking you whenever I saw you, did you find a space? Have you found a space? <laughs> yeah, it's not easy. DC is not um, geared towards small independent retailers just in terms of city planning. Most right. of re the retail spaces are huge um, and they have already been built out or the landlords are actively seeking restaurants and bars and coffee shops. Mm -hmm. Maybe that will change post pandemic. Right. <laughs> um, they'll want to diversify a little bit more. But um, when I was looking in 2019, it was just impossible to come by a spot. I really wanted like 800 to 1200 square feet. And that was next to impossible to come by. Um, not to mention like square footage. I, I remember I looked at a spot on 14th street and I think that they quoted me something like $90 a square foot. Wow. Um, now that is including triple net. So it was all, all in, but it averaged okay. $90 a square foot. Um, and that was way out of budget. So um, I got lucky with the spot I found in Chevy Chase. Um, Several of my friends had moved up there in 2018 and 2019. So we were spending more time with friends for like housewarming parties and what have you. And one of my good friends who was a florist, um, Meredith of Rocking Bird Flower Company, um, convinced me to kind of like walk the street and find, see what we could find. And um, I inquired about a spot on Connecticut Avenue um, but again, it was too big and the size combined with um, you pay a premium for being on a major thoroughfare like Connecticut um, was just too much. Now, had the space been smaller, the price per square foot probably wouldn't have been as big of a deal. But given the size, the price per square foot put it out of my budget. Um, but that led me to the space around the corner, which is where we ended up on Livingston Street. And it was the perfect size. I think we're like 978 square feet or something like that. Just under a thousand. Um, a little bit more affordable because we are a side street 
Um, but honestly, I just didn't want that big of a space because then you have to merchandise it, you have to staff it, you have to. Um, and so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, how has it been going since you've moved up to Chevy Chase? So we launched in October of 2019 and we launched with a bang. I was so very fortunate. Um, my neighbors were amazing at sending folks my way, spreading the word. People posted on listservs. They shared over social media. Um, my neighbor, Farrell at Core 72, she was sending folks around the corner. My neighbor, Judy, right next door um, at Perryville was sending folks next door. It was a real neighborhood effort to spread the word and to get folks in. And it was like we were off to an incredible start. I never could have imagined um, opening with that level of um, response and interest and like just love and support. It was amazing. I I. I immediately felt like we were meant to be there and I wanted to be there for the next 30 years. Um, so it was phenomenal. And then COVID hit in March 2020. Right. right. <laughs> um, so things got trickier, but I still, I don't question. And in fact, if anything, COVID just continues to confirm that I meant to run a brick and mortar and that I meant to be in Chevy Chase. Um, the neighborhood continues to be such a source of support and inspiration. And um, it's been truly amazing. It's not without challenges. I mean, 2020 was crazy hard and we pivoted um, more quickly than I ever thought possible within my first year of business there. But um, I couldn't do it without that neighborhood. And I, I mean, I don't know that I would want to do it without that neighborhood. And I, still hope to be there for the next 30 years. So what piece of advice can you give to other small businesses? Any little nuggets based on your whole experience as, you know, a designer, a store owner, anything you want to share? I would say go for it. Don't, I think you are your biggest um, hurdle uh, you are your biggest critic. So send the email, you know, to the store <laughs> that you want to be in, send an email to about to the landlord about a space you're interested in, like just go for it because the worst thing that will happen is in my opinion, they won't respond to you or two, they'll say no. Um, but you don't know unless you try. And I don't think I would be where I am if I didn't just say like, what the heck, I'm going to send the email or I'm going to make the call. Um, and although I did it kind of in spite of myself, like I never thought people would say yes to me. I never thought I would get to where I am. I did it just because I like couldn't help myself. Right, right. <laughs> so just give it a shot and maybe they won't respond or maybe they'll say no. Or maybe they will. Um, but just just try. Um, so I've seen you grow along this journey. <laughs> and I'm so proud of you. And I want everybody out there to know about Park Story. Um, I always tell people that whenever they um, visit your store, please go and say hi to Megan. She's a great person. And um, she's just a wonderful person to talk to and to get to know. And um, 
besides the uh, excellent stuff that you have, um, my husband always gets nervous when I, whenever I say, hey, I'm going to visit Megan's store because he knows I'm going to come back with a boatload of stuff. <laughs> so you guys go check out show, um, Park Story. It's online at shopparkstory.com. If you're local, you can go in store and Megan's there. Uh, Megan, what are you doing for COVID in terms of people shopping in store? Yes. So we originally had to close down due to, well, we closed before the district required us to do so by law because it was just so uncomfortable um, and didn't feel like I knew enough at the time to open, to operate a store in person. Um, But we are open and functioning very close to normal at the moment. Um, So you can come in store, no appointment necessary. Walk-ins are very much welcome and encouraged We just ask that you wear a mask, you sanitize before you enter and touch things. We are steaming everything that gets tried on before it gets returned to the rack. Um, So you are allowed to try things on. We just hold on to them and steam them before we put them back out. Um, I've always been very um, keen on like cleaning earrings with rubbing alcohol before they go back out, but I'm even more, you know, um, on top of it than usual on that front. You can book appointments, um, so you can do that on our website or by calling or by emailing. So if you don't feel comfortable coming in store, you can book kind of a private shopping appointment before or after store hours. And then we're doing, we have a fully functioning e-commerce site, which we didn't have before the pandemic. And so you can shop online with shipping or you can shop online with in-store pickup if you just want to be able to run right in and pick up the bag um, and head back out. That also works. But in a lot of ways, we're functioning just like we did before the pandemic. We we do have limited capacity, um, so um, small chance that you might have to wait before coming in. That's not really an issue um, now that the holidays are behind us, but we are operating kind of at a limited capacity. And people can find you online at shopparkstory.com. That's your online store. And then on Instagram, it's also at Shop Park Story. Yeah. Okay. Or Facebook. Oh, Facebook. Yes, Facebook too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Instagram is our biggest, I'd say, social media presence. And I'm, I'm trying to get uh, Pinterest off the ground. So uh-huh. Pinterest is your thing. Um, I think we're Shop Park Story on Pinterest as well. Okay. Well, I highly encourage everybody to visit Shop Park Story in any way, shape, or form, whether it's personally or through social media. Megan has some wonderful, um, you know, woman-owned business and woman-owned brands there. Um, and I think you'll, I think you'll like it. So, Thank you. Every, my next tidbit of advice for everyone is get a friend like Anusha or like my friend Anna, who's our photographer. Oh, who yes. Plugs your business is like when you wouldn't. So get a friend who is your biggest advocate and bigger, biggest promoter. Cause it's, if you're like me, it's awkward to promote your own business, but others will do that for you. So, so get a good friend. That's my next big type of advice. All right. Um, I think anything else, Megan, any last yes. thoughts? Are we good to go? I think we're good. Uh, next week we'll be back. I'm interviewing Anusha. Um, so if you have any questions or anything you're dying to know, send us an email or a DM and I'll be sure to ask. And then we're going to start interviewing folks. So also get in touch if you want to be interviewed 
Or if you have somebody you want us to interview, I have a running list of those folks, which we will be in touch with. Um, but we would love to hear your thoughts on that as well. And our Instagram handle is Make Shop Podcast. You can DM us there. And our Gmail is makeshoppodcast at gmail.com. Yep. Thank you. Well, thanks so much. And we'll see you next week.